Thank you, folks, for turning up to the last talk of the day. I'm very grateful that you did. Um, what I thought we would talk about this afternoon is a question that various talks today have taken different perspectives on, which is, what does it mean to dominate the international order, and why does it matter? What we are talking about, though, is what does hegemony mean, and why do we care about that? So there are lots of different definitions of hegemony, right? Um, the one that matters is to be able to be the rule setter and the rule enforcer in the international order. And I want to talk about why it is the United States is and how it is the United States is. So the first point is that um, military strength is not the only enforcer of the international order, but it's a necessary enforcer of the international order. And it, for at least the last 70 years, has been a major component of why the United States uh, gets to set the rules of the international order. Not just that we are the strongest military power, but that we extend that strength for the protection of others in addition to the protection of ourselves. That's what earns us the right to be the dominant power in the order. But it's not the only reason. I love this crazy busy chart because what it shows you is the interwebbing of the global financial structure. Um, and the size of the dots are the, the proportion that those countries control. And the red dots and links are the Anglo-American common law states. So the ones that come out of the British and American legal tradition. Um, but of course, there are other forms of power. And I'm going to argue to you this afternoon that, in fact, the main reason that the United States is the rule setter of the international order is actually not our hard power, although that's important to why we are. It's soft power that's our truly exceptional advantage. And it's the reason that American dominance has been um, longstanding even as other countries grow stronger, as other countries go richer, as other countries grow more involved in the international order. So um, the, General Mattis is fond of saying that the United States has two powers, the power of intimidation and the power of inspiration. And this chart captures that really nicely. This is the net favorability of attitudes about the United States in various countries in the world. Uh, so it is net of people who have a negative view of the United States. And, and as you go down that order, two things are striking. Uh, the first is um, how large the group is of countries that have very positive views of the United States. But the second is look at the countries that don't. Um, that's also instructive. China, Lebanon, Turkey, Pakistan, the Palestinian territories, Russia, and Jordan. Um, and so we're going to come back to who's on, the, who's on the unfavorable list. One country who's not on here, though, that I would add to the list for you is Iran. Because if Iran were on this list the net favorability would actually be about, well, it wouldn't be the top one, uh, but it would be pretty close. 89% of Iranians have a positive view of the United States. Um, so 
what this tells us is that actually either American policies are always smart, always positive, always beneficial, which is, of course, not true, or that countries give us credit even when they don't like our policies. It's very common. I'm sure all of you have had the experience of being overseas and have people say, well, you know, I don't like the American government, but I really like Americans. Or I don't like American policy on this, but I really like America. And that's the soft power part. That's the part that we're good at. And it's not, it's partly the result of our policies, but it's more than that. It's actually who we are as a political culture. It's about the truths we hold to be self-evident and how widely appealing they are to the aspirations of other people in the world. Um, and that uh, other countries want the success that the United States has, even if they don't want the social and political consequences that the wild cacophony and a political system open enough that anybody can run for president and win in this country, um, that, that even if they don't want those outcomes, Everybody wants to figure out how to have universities like our universities. Everybody wants to figure out how to have Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to figure out how to have a movie industry like Hollywood. And what authoritarian countries try and create is they try and create those outcomes without the messy, tumultuous freedom that makes them possible in the United States. So... Um, and nobody's done it yet, right? But we have a huge social science experiment going on, and that experiment is called China, right? Where for the last 40 years, the Chinese government has instituted a set of policies that are called by academics authoritarian capitalism. That is, if I help you get rich, you have to accept that you won't have free speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, right? Um, and so far it's working. This is, a, this is a crude measure of power in the international order because, of course, you seldom know when it stops being true until the government falls, right? So it's sort of like being an actress. You're only a waitress until you get a paying role and then you're an actress, Hegemony works the same way, right? So, uh, so the advantage that of the United States system, before we move on, is that um, it, because the order is voluntary, right? Countries choose to uh, create forms of government similar to ours, to accept the rule of law, to accept tolerance, or they don't. And what you tend to see is economic and political outcomes, where the political outcome is stability um, and the economic outcome is prosperity. You see those things most uh, strongly displayed in countries that are free. And so China's the big test to that. Can they, in fact, keep a country without freedom, without the truths we hold to be self-evident, and still get political stability, and prosperity. Um, the, the, I love this slide so much. This is a, the cover of a magazine, Puck, from 1901, right after the Spanish-American War. Puck is a, a British political 
publication. And that's what America looks like to them in 1901, right? Putting its, its battleship on its head. And, and please notice what she is holding on her um, watch fob, right? More cannons, lightning bolts, um, an eagle's doing the holding, and a newspaper there in the back. Uh, so there's a political scientist, Frank Fukuyama, who's here at Stanford, and he wrote a book, much derided in the early 1990s, called The End of History. Um, and, and of course, history hasn't ended, but his argument is quite a serious one, and it actually hasn't been disproven, which he argues there is no successful alternative to the American model. There may be challengers, but nobody has proven that you can actually be prosperous and stable over long periods of time without advocating the American model, and that freedom and prosperity are inherently linked. Uh, so can anybody think of a country that is prosperous and that doesn't, uh, that lies outside the American order, that doesn't have the rule of law, that doesn't have free expression, that doesn't Anybody? A wealthy, stable society that doesn't play by the rules we play by. China? Anybody else? Singapore is a great example. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it is also a teeny little country, unlikely to be scalable in its model, but it's an important outlier. Um, and whether it proves stable once the founding generation of Singapore passes from the scene, that is, whether people who are not associated with the creation of independence in Singapore can actually have that same hold over public attitudes and the same confidence by the public that they don't need uh, to have the kinds of broader representation in order to keep it. It's a great test going on. Uh, so... If this proves true, that you don't have to play by America's rules in order to get the good outcomes that the United States has, then we will be Athens or Camelot, right? These little moments of beauty in history that get crushed by alternatives. And historians will ask why we squandered these enormous advantages that we had at the end of the 20th century and the start of the 21st century. Will be, a, will be a curiosity, like the collapse of the Mayan civilization, right? How did this happen? Because there's probably not going to be an obvious reason for it. But what will cause it if the United States fails? That is, if the dominance that we have experienced in all of our lifetimes comes to an end, it will much more likely be the result of our own indiscipline than the assertive action of an adversary. Um, that, as Lincoln said in a much more troubling time for our precious country, uh, that if destruction is to be our lot, we must ourselves be the authors of it. Historically, hegemons reshape the order in their image, right? The strongest power, once it is powerful, starts to think about international relations the way they think about their domestic relations. This chart is, uh, is wealth, country wealth, from 1500 forward. And what you see in the first top spike 
is the glory days of the Dutch Golden Age. What you see in the second spike, the red line, is Britain at its height. Uh, and what you see after it is the United States, the white line with the purple. Um, and it only goes through the end of 1998, but it's the only chart I could find that actually goes back to look at the world before the United States and Britain were dominant in it. And, uh, and the only peaceful transition in the history of the state system is between Britain and the United States. Every other one was violent. Every other one involved conquest, but not the British and American one. And as some of you know, I just finished writing a book that, that explores this, that looks at why was this transition peaceful when no other transitions were peaceful. And the answer is because uh, at the time the, when the lines cross, Britain had become a democracy and the United States, because of the conquest of the American West, had come to be an empire. That is, we looked similar to each other and different from everybody else in the international order. And the British made a judgment that they could actually share responsibilities with us, trust us to handle the Pacific and have them handle the Mediterranean. Uh, because our interests were so much the same, right? The cities would be cheering. Fear, honor, and interests are what drive state power. Here's the thing, though. They were wrong. They were right for a crucial 15 years of time, roughly from the late 1870s until the Spanish-American War. And then the United States, once it was the strongest power in the international order, started to try and reshape it into our image. We started chipping away at the legitimacy of the British Empire by arguing, for example, in the Versailles and the peace treaty after World War I, that all peoples are entitled to self-determination. Um, we started to uh, favor democratic governments and to try and institute democratic governments, which Britain had not tried to do. The 19th century frictions, right? So, so the, the thing that most people think is true is that, well, Britain and America, like, it's Anglo-America for a reason, right? We come from British roots. But that's actually not what people in the 19th century thought, right? Just think about the War of 1812, uh, that we defined our independence in contrast to what the British were. And the British didn't think they looked like us either, right? What they thought was that they were a liberal government, but not a democratic government. That is, they chose policies of free trade and, and open commerce and free press, whereas we were, in their description, a country composed of elements so various and liable on all subjects to opinions so conflicting they are a country of demagogues and non-entities. Um, and it's only after a series of crises in the 19th century where we and Britain begin to think we look alike to each other and not like anybody else. The person that's most surprised was the Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, who unified Germany. And what he said, he gave this fantastic interview to the New York Times in 1899 in which he expressed his genuine mystification 
at this convergence between Britain and the United States because, after all, a fifth of Americans spoke German in their homes. He actually couldn't understand that people who leave their country, right, and start out with nothing here in the United States, leave for a reason. Um, and that the opportunity that drew them here, the ideology that drew them here, the religious tolerance, whatever their reason, he couldn't understand it. Um, and so what you see as, uh, as the international order changes is that it becomes more American. And we are in this presidential political cycle uh, having a big conversation about really basic questions about America's role in the world. And people like me need to take a lot of responsibility for the fact that Americans are dissatisfied with the answers because it's our job to give you satisfying answers about it. But the way um, I think it's helpful to think about this problem is not are our allies crummy, because yes, they are. Um, it'd be nice if we could trade them in for better allies, but there are no better allies to be had, my friends. We have the best ones in the international order already. Um, or uh, can't we just leave this alone and let somebody else take it? The, the way to think about the problem of international order without American dominance is ask yourself what this world would be like if we're not the people setting the rules. Because that's the natural consequence, right? Vacuums get filled, and they get filled very often by people whose rules we're not going to like. We are not going to like a Chinese tribute system where prosperity is by sufferance of the government. We are not going to like a Russian mafia state. We are not going to like the incapacity and legalism of a European-dominated world. And we're not going to like the prosperity-sapping entropy that disorder will, will bring to our society. So I love this cartoon because this is what I think a lot of American voters feel like right now, right? Like everybody wants stuff from us and, and we're the only people carrying the load, whether it's economic or culture or religion, or, right? Like nobody's doing their fair share. Um, and we need to remind ourselves, I think, this year that we are actually the primary beneficiaries of the international order we created, right? It's our prosperity as well. Our prosperity relies on trading with other prosperous countries, right? Not um, the kind of manufacturing that has made China prosperous is America in the 19th century. Those are probably not jobs we want now. The jobs we want are innovation-driven, imitation of others. Uh, if you think about what America's advantages are in this international order, right? Tolerance for change is our long suit. We're the people who, who prosper in tumult. Um, and if you think about the, the comparison cases, right? We are now talking about a rising China, and, and they're good at a lot of things, and their government has lots of advantages. Many of you probably saw Tom Friedman's disgraceful column in the New York Times in which he said he wished the American government could be like China's, right, where it didn't respect the rights of its citizens so it could build railroads that it run on high speeds. Um, there's a lot of, of thinking that China is great and we're bad at things. 
but very few Americans want to trade away the things that make it difficult to get consensus and high-speed railroads in this country. And there's a parallel, actually. In the 1950s, we had this exact same conversation about Germany, right? The Wirtschaftswunder, the, the great advance of German industry. Um, in Japan, in the 1980s, they were good at manufacturing in a way that we just weren't. And, and now it's China. But whoever in the audience called out Singapore earlier, that's actually who we should be trying to emulate in some ways, but not all, because they're the much more successful and sustainable model. Um, I would remind you, though, that for all the burdens of our allies, less Americans die in our wars because of them, right? Playing team sports means you share the burdens of what we are trying to achieve in the world. And our allies don't just give support and soldiers. There are our regional intelligence networks. There are diplomatic partners who feed ideas into our policymaking. They offer their markets, their territory, their treasury, and their soldiers to our common causes. And it is our ability to draw people in on our side that is the genius of the American order. It is what actually makes it possible for us to achieve this much. And it's harder and more expensive without them, as tiresome as they are. And as some of you know, I was the poor taxpayer who had to do coalition politics during the Iraq War from 2003 to 2006. I know it's tiresome, but it is actually so much better than the alternatives. Our trade agreements cement the kind of political agreements that we have. They build linkages that make us all richer. And the institutions that we so often find tiresome, the United Nations, NATO, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, all of those things are not only American creations, they are burden-sharing devices that make everything that we're trying to do um, something others share in doing with us. And that's the secret of American dominance. Um, so it's tempting, though, to think that, uh, that, that China's making enormous advances and we can't counter them. And, and Russia is making interesting and important strategic choices that have moved into a vacuum that we have left in the Obama administration. So I love this cartoon. It's from The Economist, right? Mexico saying, I hate election years. They mean American election years, by the way, and, and well, they should. France saying, there's a mountain of mud being slung. The United States, weary of the cost of all this. And, and the Russians, of course, looking for ballot boxes to stuff. But, but notice all the Chinese under the feet of that great big dragon saying, at least you have an election year to hate. Um, so, because the truth is that we are actually making progress on changing the world in our image, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. Azar God, a very great historian, wrote a book called War and Civilization, and, and makes the argument very persuasively that liberal states actually prevent war by creating the organization that makes societies prosperous, and giving nonviolent means of redistribution. Authoritarian governments haven't found, a haven't found a stable way to do that. 
That said, the Obama doctrine, which some of you may have read about in the president's extraordinary interviews with Jeffrey Goldberg, Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, um, backslide away from the sort of assertive changing of the international order. The president has more faith in institutions without us driving those institutions as we traditionally have. He has more faith in leading from behind than leading from the front. But of course, the problem with leading from behind is that it requires allies to follow from the front. And most allies won't do that. Many allies can't do that. Let me just give you my, my favorite example of America leading from behind when it's done right. It was during the Clinton administration, and it was right after the debacle in Somalia, where, um, and their East Timor was breaking away from Indonesia. And the United States very much wanted this to happen peacefully, but there was no way we could contribute to the United Nations effort after Somalia. And the Australian government of John Howard was actually willing to. And the United States government quietly offered the Australians any help it would take for them to be able to succeed at this. Any help they needed. We gave them a blank check. They stepped forward and did an outstanding job. And because they succeeded at that, it made them confident enough to take a much more active international role as we have seen in Iraq, as we have seen in Afghanistan, as we have seen in everything we have tried to do since then. Contrast that to President Obama's approach um, in the Libya example, where we stepped back and, and expected allies to do most of the work, and yet we still took all the credit for it while explaining the NATO ambassador and the NATO military commander, both Americans, wrote a New York Times op-ed piece saying, we did 80% of the work, none of this would be possible without us. That's how you get allies to hang back and not do anything. We need to actually get good at encouraging allies again. But we shouldn't lose hope. This is from the 2016 Freedom in the World uh, Freedom House, an outstanding organization, publishes an annual survey of freedom in the world. And you'll see in 1985 that the world was roughly split between the green line are free states, the yellow lines are not free states, and the blue line are states that are partially free. So they would, for example, uh, make the United States always tops the league tables of free states. Um, unfree states, you can all think of them, right? Partially free states would be states like Singapore, where there is the rule of law, but the government is not accountable in the same way that Western governments are accountable. And what you see over time is that the number of free states are increasing. The big increase after the end of the Cold War is, is the peak of 2005, and we are seeing some erosion um, in the international order. But we are also seeing a line that even if it jags like a stock market, um, like a stock market daily report is nonetheless going up over the long term. Um, I would argue, just in closing, that our biggest challenges, the challenges to our dominance, are all predominantly domestic challenges. And they are a function 
Let me just read you a passage from Theodore Roosevelt's 1904 State of the Union Address that I keep hearing this election season. The eternal vigilance, which is the price of liberty, must be exercised sometimes to guard against outside foes, although, of course, far more often to guard against our own selfish or thoughtless shortcomings. And the biggest of these selfish and thoughtless shortcomings is the fact that we are spending our children's inheritance um, at a time when we aren't even facing great and enormous national challenges. The debt is the biggest national security risk the United States is running, and we are doing it voluntarily, my friends. Um, We ought to be very worried about that. Um, the, The challenges that we have to surmount defanging the fear of change, economic and social change, that people are having such strong reactions to this election cycle. People are worried by the pace and magnitude of change. This would all be easier to handle if our economy was growing faster. Um, But the, um, the rebuilding of consensus about the need to stop spending money we don't have would be the biggest and best thing we could do for America's role in the world. If you go back to the start of this uh, talk, when I was talking about the attractiveness, I see Jim Madison in the back of the room, so I'm going to go back to his point about having the power of intimidation and the power of inspiration. A lot of the reason that we are such an inspiring model to the world is that we have tended to govern ourselves well. And this chart is, more than anything else, the summary of us not governing ourselves well right now. As you can see, in 2028, our debt will reach the 100% mark. Um, By 2039, on current projections, it will be nearly double that. Um, The affordability of our debt will get much, much less so when interest rates start going back up. We need to solve this problem while it is still a manageable problem for us. Um, Let me just, as a last point, push the share of debt for that child at 29 and 20, excuse me, at 18 uh, in, looks like about 2035. $87,000. We are on an unsustainable path that is absolutely of our own making, my friends. Um, And the ability of the United States to rejuvenate itself has been a, a great source of strength and a surprise to our adversaries for generations. But but this is arithmetic, right? Um, So I would uh, close by giving you a slightly more positive view, which is that uh, for all of the things that we do badly right now, uh, we very often underestimate all of the things other people would have to do well to overtake the United States. So even if you believe that the rules that the United States has established, the rule of law, free markets, free trade, that those things are unnecessary, and that a rising China can remain authoritarian and still uh, surpass the United States and become the rule setter of the international order. 
Um, there are a lot of things that we do well that we don't actually give ourselves much credit for. The Chinese have yet to navigate the middle income trap, right, to get past extractive industries and basic manufacturing. They're getting there, but they're not there yet. Um, the transition from an economy of exports to an economy of domestic consumption, an aging population with a society that's intolerant of immigration, um, and, and Xi's crackdown on dissent suggests, actually, that they're, they are deeply concerned that, free, that ideas of freedom are getting traction among the Chinese population. That's why the great firewall of the internet that they've put up, that's why they are cracking down so much on you know, teenagers trying to send each other topless pictures. Uh, because they are genuinely afraid of their ability to continue holding on to power. Um, the extensive anti-corruption campaign that she has going does not appear to be outrunning corruption, right? Because he's not, he's not running out of people to prosecute. Um, moreover, uh, let's see, what else is on my list? Ah, and last is the costliness of primacy if they get it. So if you think about the South China Sea, where the United States is trying to get all of the countries in the region to cooperate, to push back with the United Front on China's assertive, unilateral building, what was it Connie called it last night, sandcastles? Um, that uh, building new islands and putting military airstrips on them. Um, the, the pushing back on that is coming from us in coordination with our allies. Now, this isn't easy. You'll notice that the new president of the Philippines is, is being extremely tiresome, right? He's calling President Obama names. He's going to China. He's threatening to throw the United States out of the Philippines. Um, and our government is very wisely doing what Lyndon Johnson did when the French did this in 1965, which is to calmly say, when a man asks you to leave his house, you take your hat and go. Because what the Philippines are likely to find is that um, the United States may be a tiresome ally, but they too have few better choices. Um, and that, at the end of the day, is the secret of American power. Russia's a danger to us through their failure, not through their success. If we fix our own problems, and we remind ourselves that allies are worth having, that an order constructed across these 70 years is actually principally in our interests, not just in other people's interests. And we remind ourselves that we're actually good at a lot of things that other countries struggle to get right. Um, solve our problems, and, and I bet our grandchildren's grandchildren will still be living in a world of American dominance. Anybody care to disagree or challenge anything I said or ask for more information? Now's your chance, please.